If you've ever heard about Ancestry.com or Ancestry and thought that this wasn't something for you due to your own family's immigration story, which I'm guilty of over here. Or alternately, if you love nothing more than to have centuries of your family's history in the United States documented for you, like my cousin who has been spearheading our family tree has right over here, yay. Then this episode is for you. Or if you've never heard of Ancestry before, but you work in corporate America and know you want to help make change for the better, or you're a parent who wants to talk to your kids about origin stories, you'll still want to listen. Because this episode fundamentally isn't just about tracing your roots. This episode is about belonging, which is something that impacts all of us every day. We had the amazing privilege of sitting down with Ashley Davis, who is the global head of DEI at Ancestry. And we talked not only about her road to her current position, but also really everything related to inclusion and belonging and psychological safety in so many spheres, and not just in her professional roles. After this conversation, we left wanting so much more, and hopefully you will as well. Don't sleep on this episode. You may want to listen to it a second time, and you will definitely want to share it with your friends. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Don't forget to order our book from your local bookstore and leave us a review on Amazon. Could you please introduce yourself for our audience? Because we are so excited to have you here today. Absolutely. Thank you. My name is Ashley Davis, and I am the Global Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Ancestry. Some folks say Ancestry.com. I might say that too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we have so many things to discuss because you have such a unique background that you bring to this role. And, but I want to walk it back a little bit because I really would like to start with your diversity and civil rights experience. Because when we were prepping for this, we read this in your background and was like, yes, because you served six years in the Obama administration in positions like the senior advisor for civil rights and director of the National LGBT Rural Summer Series, which is a national initiative to connect LGBTQ plus and other marginalized communities with resources to address things like food insecurity, housing, and youth empowerment. And I think that's so amazing. And it also sort of highlights this thing that I felt in corporations. And maybe, you know, this is something that we feel in government too, because sometimes it feels like to make real change, you have to be part of the governing bodies. And yet, looking at that from the outside, especially considering the huge divides that we have in our country now, politics seems something that's really scary to get involved in. So can you tell us about what led you into that political landscape and what those roles were like for you? And I especially would love if you could talk about, you know, in our prep call, you said, don't count yourself out of public service. So I'd love to hear why you say that as well. Sure, absolutely. You know, a couple of things just immediately that come to mind. We're only connecting by voice here, but if you could paint a picture of voice, like you, you see a Black, queer, lesbian from the South. I know, I think I shared with you all, I can't hide the accent from Nashville, so it comes out exceedingly loud at times, especially during sporting events. But I share that because the intersections of my identity are really the reasons why growing up, as I was kind of chanting every political phrase I could memorize what I heard on television and telling everyone what I wanted to be when I grew up, there were certain adults that would, you know, of course, encourage me. And then others, as I got older, that would say, well, you know, no one 
black and white and a woman has done this or a woman has never done that. And that for some and for obvious reasons was a bit of a kick in the gut, but it also kicked me in the pants a little bit too, to say, look, then if no one's done it, then fine. I didn't plan on being the first, but I'll go be the first. And that for me, especially when it came to public service, was really important because, you know, I had the privilege and I do use that word uh, intentionally to serve in a historic administration. But even in that historic administration, there was no one that really looked like me. There was no woman really until after our second, my second year of service that dressed in a full suit to go to work. And so I was misgendered several times, not because people were, you know, ill-intentioned, but because they just didn't know. And because of that, I realized I needed to show up and have a voice in a very thoughtful way. But I also needed to find allies that were going to have my back. So when I was misgendered, I didn't always have to go, it's Miss, it's Ashley, it's she, her. And quickly, I found great colleagues in the Obama administration that did just that. But honestly, when I step back and I think about civil rights and government versus doing DEI now in the private sector, in the government, one, first and foremost, you found yourself sometimes putting a lot of fires out that post like immediate need of your intention right there and then because you had people's lives, livelihood, connections to internet, rural, you know, access to water on the line, people losing property that been in their their family for generations. And that doesn't make light of the work that I do right now, because certainly that is life altering and global impacting too. But there's something quite special when you get to serve people who are then going to go back and serve their families, create spaces for their families. And so I absolutely tell people all the time, look, if someone with from, you know, first generation college student, there's nothing in my background that said Ashley should, you know, go and serve in the administration, should be on Air Force One. By the way, it's awesome. And <laughs> it's, so there's, cool. it's nothing like that that said I should do that. I came, quite frankly, from North Nashville and I was born in a zip code that to this state is one of the highest incarcerated zip codes. And so, you know, we know we've heard that phrase of you know, it's attitude, attitude that should determine our aptitude. But there are a ton of invisible barriers and things that can catch you up, not because you're not the hardest working person, but because someone looked at you on paper and said, eh, let's try that next kid. And so I tell people all the time, if ever there was a time in public service and government in our communities, when we need the folks who usually count themselves out, it's now. We've seen what happens when the, the usual folks get the usual space and the usual mics, and then we go on mute and we decide, well, you know, we're really ticked off, but that ticked off them just stops right there in that moment. Our kids are depending on us here to create novel ideas and concepts. Like equality is not something that erodes over time. It stands still and it is steadfast. And so I know for some people will say, look, she's being like super inspirational, aspirational here. No, I'm telling you, this is just a bedrock of what our country was always supposed to be, even if our forefathers didn't understand the concept of it completely too. And I think that's okay to say too. That's, I mean, I think we could just spend an entire hour having a conversation just about that part of your life and your experience. So thank you so much for sharing that, you know, but yet you also mentioned now you're in a different field or in a different sector, right? And I would love to know what brought you to focus more on DEI in particular at Ancestry.com, which is what I say too, not Ancestry, <laughs> you know, especially because I think there's people out there who can't envision what that is, right? But there's also a lot of people who work, who listen to this show that work in a corporate environment. They may also be at a company that has less effective DEI platforms. And so I would love if you could sort of paint a picture for us a little bit about what you and the DEI team do on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure, Absolutely. 
Well, you know, let me just speak to the first part of what you said there is there are so many of us that have the opportunity to work in the private sector every day and have been for decades, folks, with, you know, long tenured more so than myself. And I think that when I think about just the kind of conversations I've had now, this is in technology where I am at Ancestry.com. I've served in finance. I've also served in the space of agriculture. And there are very similar issues in each one of those sectors. And it really comes down to people wanting progress at a speed that sometimes doesn't match what's possible because people aren't always ready. We haven't put the right levers in place. We haven't had the really tough conversations quite yet. But in private sector, you know, usually you always got to talk about resources, but it's different than government. It is a very unique space. And quite frankly, we can live a little bit in the bubble, of course, right? I've done a, a quite a bit of work on the side, of, like working with insurance companies and even working with folks who say, look, I'm going to start up this startup and we want to do it right, Ashley. How do we avoid X problem there? And I always tell them at the center of all this work, I don't care what industry, if you're selling widgets, you're selling magic school buses, you have got to center people with empathy and be honest about who's missing around the table. That is a tough conversation. It's also a tough awareness if you look at your, your sheet, your balance sheet, and you realize you've been super successful for years. And then someone whispers in your ear and say, well, you could have been more successful if you had a more diverse team. That sucks for a lot of people to think about, but it's the truth because research shows it, experience shows it. And quite frankly, we know that this world is demanding it. I tell folks all the time, you can't find an industry where you can hide from DEI. You just can't. And so every day at the Ancestry, I think of our my team's job as being twofold. One, we have to be present in the now. What is happening in our community. And by that, I mean our company and our company is a community and responding to that, meaning where are people at on their journey? And we talk a lot about journeys here at Ancestry. And then two, where do we want to be? And do we have the right fuel in our tank to get there? And sometimes that fuel is the type of training we're doing around inclusive leadership. Sometimes it's having conversations about psychological safety. It's setting goals around where we want to be in 2025. By the way, we're doing all of those things and we'll do more of that. And then sometimes it's shifting off, going on mute and asking the people who usually don't get the mic in, in all companies, right? So we look at corporate title first sometimes and don't uplift every voice. And we say, what are we missing? What's your lived experience here? And sometimes we don't get a response because people don't feel comfortable sharing. But what we found is that if we ask it the right way with intentionality, authenticity, and we're positioning it again with empathy, people are not only responsive, but they're resounding with their responses about what we need to do. And then I'll step back and just say that the way I've been leading this work from the very beginning is let's not ask a question we're not willing to listen to the answer for. You know, let's not ask women, what is it like to be a woman here? And as soon as women tell us, we go, oh, you know, she's just being, she's complaining. And we've all been in those spaces where someone has asked us to tell them what we experienced, we tell them, and then they're hoping we said something else. Well, why the heck did you ask me then? You know, I think we've all felt that space. And so it is a bit of a now versus where we want to be in the future. But doing all of that with both our product and our tool in mind, but also our community in mind. So we've set some really ambitious goals. I'm not kidding you. I want to kick their butt, that goals butt, and then move on to the next one. But I'm going to do Everything in my, like, I kind of talk a lot, like I'm on Friday Night Lights, if, you, if folks understand, like a little bit like the coach, getting folks ready to say, we are going to be out of breath at the end of this, but we are going to be a stronger team because of all that hard work too. 
And I hope our family continues to feel really energized around it. I love that. I'm hearing like now full hearts, clear minds, can't lose like in my head. So I am. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I think that's such a necessary way, right? Because to talk about this. And I think that because there are, everyone has feelings, I think when you hear, you know, the words DEI, and especially if you're thinking about it as integral to the foundation and core of your community and your company and how people-centered it really is, as opposed to sort of a layer that you put on along with all the business layers. And I would love to also ask about DEI as it relates to you know, because I've heard people, when we've heard people say, oh, DEI is the same as it's really just about anti-Black racism, right? Which which some organizations focus, you know, almost exclusively on. But I would love to hear, because we had talked about this a little bit, about how Ancestry.com looks at DEI broadly, right? And I would love to hear a little bit how you navigate this dichotomy or this vision of, you know, narrower DEI versus inclusivity for everyone. Absolutely. Okay, I think the best way to begin that is just to explain or just say very plainly who we are. We are a global leader in family history and consumer genomics, right? But let's go beyond that and say we have a mission, like a mission that is not only just inside of us, but it's everywhere within our global spaces and our work, our world, and our four corners of our office that we want to help people be empowered on their journeys of personal discovery to enrich their lives. And that is a bold mission, a bold focus, but we look at it within our product and you talk about how DEI lives and breathes within our space, but also we think about it organizationally. So, you know, we have a bold product vision. We want to help everyone discover, craft, and connect around their family story. And we know that every single person has a story, whether they've experienced it or not. And in order to get to that goal of having the, a truly global product for all that continues to ebb and flow and, and grow and expand the way it needs to to meet everyone, we know we got to have the right team, the right workforce in place. And by that, right for us, is diverse, is inclusive. And so we set an organizational goal to have 45% diverse representation in our senior most roles, but also in that of our scientific STEM-related roles, what we deem to be, of course, most critical when it comes to our product and our vision to be as innovative as possible. The great news on all of this is one, it is not an Ashley Davis's head of DEI, Ashley, go figure, figure this out. It's not just a Deb Blue as our CEO. Every segment of our company has not only heard about these goals, but they're talking about ways to integrate into their own performance, which by the way, if you were looking for the cliff notes to this conversation, everyone has to be on board with this, right? Like it should sit on everyone's leaf if you're being like super into puns and things as it relates to ancestry in our trees. Um, but but you've got to be okay with saying that shared accountability is something we not only expect, but we are looking out for. And then there's the DEI in our product. So we are focused on continuing to innovate for our current subscribers, but we also want to deliver new experiences for the millions of people around the world who are interested in learning more about their family. And regardless of family dynamics, you think about race, ethnicity, heritage, and, and even the language that you speak at home and beyond, we want everyone to see themselves and their family in our product. And that's why we're focused on building a more inclusive experience. But you can't do that in a vacuum, right? We do. We realize every single day that we have to expand who's around the table, who is being heard, who's speaking up, and in cultivating a space where people do just that. We think about DEI also beyond our product 
as being a part of our education and our programs as well. So, you know, there's a ton of conversation that takes place just within their own individual teams, but at least once a quarter, we come together for something we call Amplified Voices. And we bring in external speakers to be who are thought leaders in their space or, you know, civil rights activists, community organizers to have a conversation around what it means, what it takes to speak up, to create you know, a little bit of discord so that innovation follows, so that good product and good responses follow, follow. We found that our community loves these conversations. We've had NASA scientists, we've had civil rights activists, LGBTQ historians, you name it, we've touched it and it will continue to go and move. And what we found is when we step back after those conversations, some of the most amazing, I think you all are okay with me saying dopest, dopest conversations ever, take place in that space. Because we don't say it's the DEI conversation. We say we're going to amplify someone's voice you maybe otherwise may not have ever heard of. And that diversity of perspective does wonders for the kind of culture we want to create. Now, what I heard was something that we do hear from a lot of thought leaders in this space too, which is that you can't just do, it's not lip service. You're not just creating a product for the sake of it. It requires having the workforce in place in positions of power to continue to serve a better, more like more broader, diverse audience. And so I love hearing that. And I also wondered though about this idea of products and this creation of products. And my cousin, who is a longtime user of Ancestry.com and has tracked our whole family, did send over a question. For example, we talked about the Black community and what sort of, his question was like, given the challenges that cause historic records to underrepresent some groups significantly, is there any special internal emphasis on finding ways to address that for employees and for customers? And we've talked also about, you know, the black community and then skepticism in the, about giving away your DNA information in that community, given the historical things that have happened to the black community. And so I was wondering, you know, how do you partner with other groups? I think we talked about a school project. Can we sort of expand on this a little? Absolutely. Well, let me begin with what you said there about just in it. To me, I hear the words of privacy of trust, because it's important. I had a boss once that was um, said the phrase to me, and I've always carried it deep in my heart. It says, you know, trust is earned in drops, lost in buckets. And we find we center that very intentionally in our space, because we know our customers have trusted us with personal information for many, many decades. And we're committed to helping them have that assurance and awareness and comfortable knowing that they should feel just as secure today where, as they did the day they joined the Ancestry platform. And that's whether it's your family history or your DNA data, we always strive to manage uh, personal information with integrity and, and respect. And I'll use an example here of myself. When I joined Ancestry, my family, you know, asked me, you know, are you, does that mean you're going to do Ancestry? I said, well, of course I'm going to do Ancestry. I'm joining Ancestry. I'm really excited about it. And then I, and my dad said, all right, you know, you know, we don't know a lot about it. I said, well, dad, let's sit down. Let's look at the web- website. Let's figure out what we don't know. And quickly, all of our answers were right in front of us. And of course, it helped a lot, quite frankly, that my parents, after seeing me engage and seeing my report, felt more comfortable. But what's important for anyone and everyone to know is that customers always maintain ownership and control over their own data here at Ancestry. We don't share data with insurance carriers, not with employers, third-party marketers, and Lord knows none of us need any more spam, right? None of us need it. We also don't share information with law enforcement. 
And I know that's a great concern to a lot of people. The only way we will ever share anything with law enforcement is pursuant to a valid legal process. So court order or search warrant. But it's important also to know that your DNA data in our system, in the ancestry system, is de-identified, it's encrypted, segmented to a separate dedicated access control storage platform. And there's a lot of times, especially in government, where they use a lot of words and you go, what does that mean? What it means is that we center every single thing that we do in ancestry around integrity and respect. And we also know that transparency is really, really important. As a person of color, let, let me be very frank, I know from engaging with platforms even beyond ancestry that there's times when I've gotten there and said, oh, I wish there was a bit more there. What's incredible about Ancestry, however, is that over time, even just in the last six months of me being on this platform, my results have gotten even more refined. I've gone from not just knowing I'm from Nigeria, from 34%, to knowing more about the tribe that I'm from in that space. That's incredible. I'm a, a sixth generation Nashvilleian where usually I can't go that far back except for word of mouth and following rec records. And now I'm even able to go further back than that. And for Black people, a lot of us have been defined as our history beginning when we got to the shores of America. And we know that's simply not the case. We are not defined merely and only by the origin of slavery in this country, but rather all the contributions of our ancestors before then. And all of us should have that privilege to connect to that story. And so we are absolutely, and I can put a big we on this, full court press position, not just to increase the millions, and quite frankly, it's beyond that now, 3.5 millions of records that alone connected to Freedmen's Bureaus and Freedmen's Bank records that we have. But we also are working diligently to make sure you have even, even more equitable and accessible experience as a person of color like myself. And that to me is really, really exciting. And then, you know, last thing I'll just point out is a daughter and granddaughter of former educators Ancestry Classroom is one of the coolest things that we do. And something I'm saying right now, you might say that Southern girl saying a lot, take one thing and that's Ancestry Classroom and go Google it right now, because it's really important to know that this tool is available to you, your classroom, and also to the millions of uh, students around the country here too. So we believe that understanding your past is a powerful tool for building resilience, connection and understanding for all ages. So we have a long-term commitment to empower the next generation of history makers with the tools they need. So our team created Ancestry Classroom, a no cost, zero cost, no catch here program that provides educators with classroom resources, discussion guides, access to historical content from the U.S. collection of Ancestry, Fold3 and newspapers.com, which by the way, if you've never been on newspapers.com, there's something cool waiting on you. It's just incredible. So for nearly a decade, we've offered these services and we've reached more than 6 million students. But to be honest, is, we know there's more to be done. So we're on a goal here that by 2025, we're going to have our hands connected to that access of 10 million students. And so it's really, really important. Quite frankly, the students are getting a robust engaged, interactive experience of what it means to know where they come from, but also where their classmates come from, because we think that can bud the kind of conversations that we want kids to have and the new discoveries we want them to have, too. I love this. Well, all of what you said, but in particular, Ancestry Classroom, because in second grade in my boys' school, they have a country of national origin project, and it has been sort of a difficult conversation to navigate 
because we don't have that baseline, right? We have a very different background than a lot of the other students in the class. And I just love what you were saying about how this tool will get kids not only interested in their own sort of stories, but also really invested in the stories of their classmates. And I think if we're looking for that human connection, right, and that sort of empathy and intentional learning, that's the tool, right, that will help get this generation, this generation that wants us to be doing more for them in the, along that way. So I love it. I love that you, you know, you mentioned the integrity behind the security around the work, right? I feel like that was really important to share and I appreciate you doing that. I also know it was a phrase you also mentioned earlier on in this conversation though, because when you have so many different types of people in a space together and usually one type of person, like right in the majority is used to their voice being heard. A lot of others feel like they're not sure they're going to be respected if they use their voice. And it was that concept of psychological safety that you mentioned earlier on, you know, what does that phrase mean to you and how do you actually go about creating spaces that offer psychological safety, uh, whether it's in the workplace or the school or any of our communities? Yeah. I don't know how good this mic is here, but I took a deep breath here because it's um, psychological safety is so very important and yet not easy at all to accomplish in the workspace because it takes commitment and an awareness of the fact that you're trying to change behaviors and also just quite frankly, actions at times for the better, you know, right? So when I think about psychological safety, I think about that a belief that we have, that a person has, that they won't be rejected or humiliated in a setting or a role. And I also think it describes a climate where people feel free to express their thoughts and feelings as you were just describing, you know, when you don't have that. In other words, you know, if a person has the belief that they can make a well-intentioned action or a statement in a meeting or elsewhere, and that everybody around the table won't think less of them, that they resent them or you're going to be penalized because you didn't agree with the boss, right? Who, who wants to do that? When you have that situation in place, you have that safety. And you know, I like to think of it a bit like, oh, you know, who just came to mind? Miss Frizzle, right? Like when you think about the magic school bus and the cool, I know I see Sarah's like, where in the world is Ashley <laughs> going with this? I'm not kidding you though. Still uh, in a second grader. So yes, we're deep in that magic school bus world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you get it. Like remember Miss Frizzle told all of us, not just, you know, Arnold and Ralphie. I remember way too many of their names, but she told them to like make mistakes, to get messy. You know, she told them, encouraged them in fact to do that. And we saw what her students were able to do as a result of that. Like they had that safety to do incredible things, to make amazing discoveries, right? I don't know what your favorite episode was. Mine was when they taught us friction and they're sliding around the baseball field. And it was quite incredible. But I remember the questions they used to ask one another as they were trying to solve really tough problems. And that is psychological safety, right? You can pick that really elementary example up. But that was a space where we saw what it looked like to be in a group where not everyone looked alike, not everyone had the same pedigree as you might want to say, but every single person had a voice there because the leader, the teacher in, the, in this instance in that classroom was really intentional about leaning into the person who was quiet or the person who perhaps didn't feel like their voice would matter and say, well, what do you think we should do? And that usually led us to that example that we need. And now we're, we're standing in a space and we know that that is not a freedom afforded to all of us very easily, to many of us, quite frankly, because a lot of other things come into play. We start thinking about who has the most tenure. Am I, have I been here long enough? And 
I'm a graduate from X, everyone else went to Y, or I didn't even go to college, or I'm from this community, or you know, no one looks like me around the table. And it's quick and easy to say, well, that's your fault. You should speak up. I've heard people say that, you know, that, and to me, that ties back to that very dangerous, pull yourself up as if somehow we all enter this world with bootstraps to begin with. And what it really takes is cultivating a space where people know that they are welcomed, that they can make mistakes here, they can get messy, so long as they're well-intentioned and want to move the team forward. And so when I think about psychological safety and DEI, I'll say over and over again, you don't have a DEI program, DEI initiative, if you have not addressed and centered psychological safety in that space. You can do a million surveys, you can talk to 100 groups, you can have employee resource groups out the wazoo, but if they only feel safe when you're out of the room or talking amongst themselves or remaining silent, then you're probably not going to get uh, any farther in that journey. And so, you know, I'll just end on just saying a couple of things, two things. One is that, you know, when someone's asking, well, how should I think about cultivating a, a more psychologically safe space? You're probably saying one or two things. You might say, we don't have that problem. And, or you're saying, yeah, we've got that problem, but what do we do about it? Maybe someone listening doesn't have that problem, but chances are, if we're going to put a wager of a dollar down, I can promise you, you've got some form of psychological safety issue. You can look at the percentage of people who choose not to respond to your surveys and remain anonymous to people who in meetings, you know, are very comfortable not engaging because they have maybe engaged before and someone shut them down. There's a myriad of reasons and ways you can think about that, that psychological safety not existing in your group. But if you're thinking about what you want to do next, I would tell you to be honest with yourself and aware of the journey ahead. I said earlier, it's not easy. And that's because you are endeavoring to help yourself and through influence people around you develop new beliefs and behaviors. You as a leader, if you're the person who either has the mic or you're the leader of the team, you're the leader of your family in space, you need to intentionally invite input and feedback. And when other people start talking over or through or we've all had that person say our same idea in, this, in a different voice and we go, well, what just happened to my voice? You have to speak up and go, yeah, you know what? Susie just said that. Thanks so much, Chuck. I appreciate your, your input here, right? Don't take credit for other people's work. And then I would just say model openness and don't try to come off as a shiny penny. Normalize vulnerability in this space so that other people know it's okay to make a mistake. The best moments in the world is when you can make a mistake and someone goes, you know, I did that two years ago too. It stunk. I know how you feel. It's okay. Let's keep moving. And so that psychological safety in this time, and I'm just thinking about where we are right now. If you're measuring your DEI efforts and either personally, or if you're looking at collectively where you are, if you haven't paused to make sure people feel safe to tell you the truth, you're probably still getting lip service. People are probably still treating you like the emperor of no clothes on, right? We don't want to tell you you are stark naked here. We're just going to keep saying thank you for your efforts, right? And so I just really think it's truly, truly important that we center this psychological safety effort as much as we're centering all the other conversations we're having within our conversation and within our families too. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. You know, you mentioned something that I wanted to ask about, which it was ERGs, because I noticed on your website, you have a number of ERGs, but each one is worded differently. 
right? The purpose of each, it's not this blanket. This is a group for this type of people to come together. Like they all have individual goals and purposes. Well, I think we'll skip over the part about why ERGs are important. Like suffice it to say, ERGs are important. And if you're in the majority and you feel like you don't understand that, we can have that conversation separately outside of this, this episode. But, you know, what are the questions that you ask as you set up ERGs and how do you define the purposes of them? And how do you deem or how does the, your organization deem the success or judge the success or of an ERG? Sure. It is, I would, three buckets of it. First and foremost, our employee resource groups are just that, employee-led. They're intentionally uh, worded there and their autonomy really matters, which means we absolutely are careful about ensuring that when you take on the role of a co-chair of an ERG, you have the time, you've got the support of your manager, um, you've got a strategic plan in place. We partner them with not just, of course, our DEI team, but outside partners to ensure that they don't have to come up with that strategic plan out of air. But we talk to them about what do you see the need of your particular community? What's going on? Is it you know, visibility, sense of belonging, resources, you know, connecting with others, engagement. This, this could be rather long for an ERG, but tell us why. Why now and what you plan to do about it and what help you need as well. What we found is that, again, I, I was hasten back to my, what my grandmother says, if you're quiet a moment, you'll hear the answer. And what we found is when we're quiet and we listen to our employees, they're very honest about where they think they could be engaged both in short term right now and then long term down the line. We've asked uh, each ERG, and by the way, now we have seven. We have our newest one, Ability, that focuses on uh, people who are differently abled and the accessibility in that space. And what we found every single time in each ERG is that it is uniquely different for each one of them. Some of them are connected to the fact that, look, there's mental health and awareness we need to bring to the forefront here. There are people who need to ensure, we need to make sure that when we think about talent in this segment of diversity, we're being inclusive and we're being thoughtful about that as well. And so they've been incredible partners, not just in the talent space, not just in our product space, but in all of Ancestry as well. Each one of our ERGs has an executive sponsor, but they also have a senior level sponsor because we know if someone's, you know, executive sponsor reporting to our CEO, they don't have all the time they might want to engage. But if you put two leaders in that space, you're likely going to have a better success of getting that senior level input in the conversation. And so I would just pause also and just acknowledge if you're thinking about, you know, you want to provide uh, space for community Offer, yes, the structure around saying, look, we can offer you, you know, your resource. By the way, they, they can't do it on a shoestring budget, but they should have a plan in place about how to spend that budget. But then also don't just tell them, go figure it out. We'll see you, the LGBT group in, on, in Pride Month. You have to make sure that you're being an ally and, and a partner to them that whole year because they have that lived experience 365 days a year. So I like to tell my colleagues, friends as well that, I can't have you engaged unless you are engaged the full part of the year. You only care about women from March 1 to March 30, then, you know, this probably isn't the best place for you because women are still women in April, right? And we know that we still have those lived experiences. And so it can't be a light switch effect where you only care about certain issues as they are popular in that moment. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think back to many years spent as part of different ERGs and the difference in intentionality between, you know, what I'm hearing you say and some of the experiences I felt, right, and have been told that, you know, about 
you know, Asian Heritage Month is, you know, that's in May. So we're not going to talk about this right now. So, you know, and what you said about light switch, right? And that leads me to sort of a broader allyship question. And one of the things that really stood out for me in our prep call was that you were talking about your different identities. And then you said sometimes the hardest part of your identity at times is being a woman. And we, you know, our podcast is called Dear White Women for a whole host of reasons. But I want to ask you, you know, given what you said, which I thought was so powerful, what would you want more white women to know? Well, first and foremost, you know, I'm a woman from, you know, the moment I open my eyes, so I go to sleep and beyond that too, you know, you, we don't get to turn off being women. I think there's moments when being a woman is harder than other moments, but it is always both a privilege and a struggle that we bear with the hope that the next generation of women will be able to bear just a little less and just be it very simply. As a Black queer woman, as a gender non-conforming woman, meaning I haven't worn a blouse with, you know, lace or, or lace or frills or heels and years, decades, I can say that decades, right? I have no interest in it, but I'm no less a woman and addressed it and defined my womanhood. And yet many women seek to do just that. And it's particularly when I'm in spaces with white women, I find myself almost having to fight to be just to exist. And I'll give you an example. You know, something as simple as going to the restroom seems very simple until you are looked at as if you don't deserve or belong to be in that space. It wasn't until my fiance and I, she and I went to her, into the restroom together once and she heard someone say to me after she had gone into the stall, do you know where you are? And I looked around like, yes, I know where I am. I've gone to this, you know, a restroom several million times, right? Well, do you know, did you see the sign on the door? And she was, this white woman was very intentionally focused on trying to get me to understand signs on restroom doors. And I said, ma'am, I'm just fine. Please, please continue. And it didn't matter how kind I am right now. I'll come back to, you know, how people say, well, if you did just say it politely, I shouldn't have to say a word in that space, right? I didn't ask her to go into a stall with me and use the restroom. We know this is an individual act that each one of us learn uh, very young. But as a white woman in that space, I truly wish she had, one, thought to herself, okay, maybe perhaps this is not me being the restroom police. Now, I've never seen that on Indeed or a job board. So I know they didn't hire her to do such a thing. But I also just wish, quite frankly, that people recognize, even after the fact, that coming back and saying, I'm sorry, apologies. I got a little concerned and then perhaps maybe overstepped, would have gone a million miles beyond that. Because I doubt she cared about that moment after talking to her friend about it, but it carries with me. It is something I'm conscious of in every airport, in every truck stop, in every existence I have. I can't go do something that is biologically necessary without also thinking about what's going to happen to me and whether or not I'm safe. But I would be safer if my allies in that space, if someone decided to be an ally to me in that moment, because I was not, by the way, the only people, we were not the only people in that restroom. There were white women washing their hands. There were others that were getting paper towels that were taking their young ones away, you know, to the stall to use the restroom, but no one said a thing in that moment. And to me, if you are an ally, and we've talked about this, we've seen it, perhaps some of those, but there was an act, a verb, right? We say allyship should be a verb. There was an act someone could have easily done in that moment to lessen my load in that moment. And so if nothing else, I would ask white women in particular, which I think is quite intentional to have a, a podcast like this to say, dear white women, because white women can absolutely decide 
that as in a space, we will no longer tolerate X and it will change. There's privilege, there's currency that you have, and it's okay to have that privilege. It's also okay to lean into it. But I would ask white women to think about what it means when you show up and say that the only person deserving of a title of womanhood is someone who looks and reflects your own identity to the T, by the way, right? I've seen you, the difference of my fiance is black, but she's also, you know, very much feminine, much different than myself. She's treated completely different in so many spaces. And if she wasn't my true ally of speaking up and leaning in and pointing me out, I don't know whether or not I would be okay in a lot of spaces too. That's a really powerful story you shared. Thank you for that. And I mean, just imagine if more white women put being a woman first as opposed to being white first or being right first, right? That instance, like it ties into what I wanted to ask you about this idea of belonging, because you were definitely made to feel like you didn't belong in that bathroom. But I think belonging can come in moments like that. It can also come sort of circling back to this bigger picture of family lineage and and the work that you do at Ancestry as a company. And so how has this idea of belonging played a role in your life? Oh, quite tremendously. I think about belonging a lot because I try to figure out why so many spaces want to keep a sense of belonging at bay for, especially for marginalized groups. And I've kind of come to this understanding and it's likely because it unlocks so much awareness, power, the next level and chapter of your journey. And it positions you to at times take the seat at a table that others told you you were not welcome to. And when I think about belonging, I think a lot of folks, maybe folks have heard this phrase around like, what's the difference between diversity, inclusion, and then, you know, that diversity and inclusion then yield belonging. I think that's fantastic. I use an example very similar in conversations and trainings I do to say, look, You know, diversity is, of course, that fact that we are all diverse. You know, we don't even have to have our cameras on. We know that we're diverse because we're different. Inclusion is saying, yes, we will all be welcomed, but it's not automatic. We will be included in this conversation. But when it's true, when it's rooted in not just words, but action, when it's not just a pretty poster on the wall, it's me saying, I will put my own name, my own network on the line for you. I welcome you in this space. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to introduce you to the people that I know. I'm going to make sure that if microaggressions pop up and people are misgendering you, that I cut them off and say, look, she said very clearly her pronouns are she, her. It's she, her. It's miss. It's not mister. When you do that for me before I have to do it for myself, belonging sprouts up like a new spring, like everything that doesn't spring. In that moment, not only am I strengthened, but you are too. And it's that power that I would hope your listeners are ready for, that they realize it's not just the power that I have from being, you know, engaged and welcomed the way you just, you do. But I also think that it's like, quite frankly, just feeds us both in a really powerful way. Because the truth is, whether you know it or not, there's going to be a space where you need me to be an ally for you as well. Every single person has privilege. Therefore, I believe that every single person can be an ally in a certain circumstance in life. Now, I'm a graduate of Howard University School of Law, and I told a a white colleague of mine the other day, look, you don't know it, but if we go to Howard's campus, you're going to want me to be your ally. Why? Because when we get on that black campus and they go, what is this white man doing here? Right. And not that we don't have white people at Howard, by the way. Howard called me tomorrow and said, get out of here, Ashley. It's the fact that when you get in that space and you're no longer the dominant uh, group there, the majority in that group, 
you want me to be very clear and open mouth and saying, this is a wonderful gentleman here. He's fantastic. He's a great person. You should listen to him, have coffee with him. He's here with good intentions. He's going to be a great partner here. And it doesn't take going to an HBCU for that allyship to open up. You could just be on my side of town and we're going to dinner and perhaps they didn't welcome you the same way they did me because they know my face, they know my zip code and my area. And so we need to stop thinking that allyship is something that only feeds one way. It is the greatest feeder of the dividends that just flow back and forth, but we have suffocated it because we are fearful of who we have to say no to, stop to, which this won't happen here. And I always ask people, if you're truly serious about this, are you willing to lose friends for that, this work? Like that's gonna measure your level of commitment here. Do you still wanna have the same people at the dinner party? Well, then don't keep calling yourself an ally because chances are some of those folks around the table are not at the place where you need them to be. Okay, I love all of that because I think so many things about what you said are so powerful. And I come back to the concept that people who struggle with this concept of allyship, right, feel that they are losing something, right? They are sacrificing something. But I think that to your point, that is a very narrow and incomplete view of what that is, right? Because sure, are you going to lose some friends? That's possible, right? But are you going to gain so much more by strengthening yourself and others with every act of allyship? Yes. And what would that look like, right? If we could all do that. And I think that the fear that you talked about is so pervasive in a lot of ways. But I think it takes seeing past the fear, right? Seeing what we could achieve, right? Rather than be just sort of held in that fear, because that is a very dark and narrow place to live, quite honestly. So I love all of what you said. Like, I want to put it on a t-shirt, right? Allyship is, goes both ways, right? It, we, and to Sarah and I have always talked about, we rise by lifting others, I think. And, and it is truly that. So thank you for sharing that. You know, there are so many other things that we could ask you about, and we could talk for probably five more hours. But, you know, in the interest of time, what else haven't we asked that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, we are two years out from having some of the most difficult conversations that I believe has happened in several generations. You know, two years ago, the um, murder of Miss Taylor, Breonna Taylor, Mr. Floyd, Mr. Floyd in Minneapolis, we started to have conversations internally in both our communities, in our companies, in our space spaces, even at our dinner tables that we usually, many of us did not have, many, several families did not have. I'll go even farther to say, especially my white peers, my colleagues have, have shared with me over the last two years and beyond, but we just didn't talk about those things, actually. It was taboo to raise, or why can't people just see beyond race, right? I share all of this because I ask people all the time, do a bit of a gut check, because if you're not fatigued right now, you're lying to yourself. There's a lot of work still yet to be done. And a lot of people feel that, why haven't we fixed this or figured this out quite yet? And I asked them to think about the arc of just history and just the U.S. alone. But we know that racism is, you know, I like to say has a passport and unlimited frequent flyer miles, right? Because it is everywhere. It follows you. It is there before you get there. Colorism is real. It is embedded in so many things that we know historically, and I just share that to say that you should not feel 
as if that fatigue you feel or that oh, frustration you feel means there's any sign that what you're doing doesn't have good intention here. In fact, sometimes it's just self-care and awareness that this is hard because not only are we doing the work that we need to do as a generation, but we're doing work of our parents and grandparents who passed it down, put a Band-Aid on it, acted as if nothing happened, and then taught you that you could be colorblind, which I believe has done the most detrimental pushback of any progress we could make. We're not trying to be colorblind. I've seen read many things about us instead being color brave. We are brave when we are step, stepping up and confident and, con- and commit to saying that, Ashley, I don't even see you as black. Well, what are you seeing then? Because my lived experience is cannot be uh, muted in moments so that my blackness disappears. In fact, instead, I need to see you. You need to see me as a partner, as a human being. And don't simply say, well, we're both human, Ashley. No, because I know if you walk into the Ritz-Carlton and I walk in with you next to you, they're going to ask you, oh, how may I help you? They might ask me if I'm here to deliver DoorDash or the like, right? It's happened, right? It has happened to all of us. And so instead of leaning away from it, instead of being bashful, we need to be brave in this space. Let there not be one more generation that we teach to be colorblind. It is not true. It is not possible. It is absolutely uh, unattainable as anything else that lives in, I talked about Miss Frizzle, but that bus that doesn't exist either, right? And so I put that levity in here because I think we got to smile as we work through some really tough things because, you know, at times it feels like you are literally on a Peloton at like 85% resistance, getting your butt kicked. It is kicking your tail. And as someone who gets their tail kicked all the time by that Peloton and whoever's riding, come find me. I'm always at the back of the pack. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not in the front, Sarah, at all. It's just really important though. It's the reason why we clip in, we get it done. done. By the way, I'm not advertising for Peloton. I'm just telling you the truth about how we feel. And so I love where we're going. I love the fact that we're going to have to course correct. And I love that I'm in a company like Ancestry where we're we're honest about the really tough conversations that we're going to have. And I love that we have customers that reach out to us and say, have you thought about X? Are you going to do Y? That's how we get stronger. That's how we get bolder. And I hope, you know, if any of your listeners see me somewhere or just want to find me to talk some more, this is stuff I literally talk about in my sleep to my fiance's disgruntledness. She wants me to stop talking about it sometimes, but she's stuck with me. We're getting hitched. So it's going to happen. So that's all I would say. Well, congratulations on your engagement. And thank you very much for sharing so many powerful viewpoints and perspectives and truths. And I appreciate your time very, very much. Absolutely. Thank you. I hope to break bread with you all in person sometime. Yes. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.